Good morning. If you're visiting with us, I want to extend a special welcome to you. It's encouraging that you have chosen to be with us this morning. And for visitors and members alike, I hope you'll stay around after services as we will meet right outside by uh, the construction site. We've got some experts, if you will, that are here this morning to help us, guide us through uh, the new building that uh, is coming along nicely, and I hope you'll stick around and be a part of that tour and to see what uh, great things that we have in store as far as making space for our growing family here. Let me ask you this. How many of you remember 9-11? Probably most of you. Most of you probably remember what you were doing that day at the time that you heard the news that an American Airlines passenger jet had flown into the North Tower. When you heard that news, you probably turned on the news and watched at 9.03 a.m. when a second American Airlines jet hit the South Tower. And you watched as these towers were engulfed in flames and smoke ascended from them, and you thought to yourself, what's going on? What's happening? Are we under attack? And as you watched throughout the day, you saw these buildings fall accordion-style to the ground, leaving nothing but rubble and clouds of concrete dust. But do you know anything about the building of those towers? Do you know anything about the manpower it took to build the World Trade Center towers? It actually took 10 years and 3,600 workers to build the World Trade Center towers. We don't know much about that, but what we do know is that it takes a great length of time and manpower to build something big and great, but only a few seconds or a few moments to destroy it. It took 10 years and 3,600 people to build the World Trade Center towers, and it only took 19 hijackers and just under three hours to destroy them. It takes a long time to build something great and only a short time to destroy it. Kind of like yesterday, when my beloved Arkansas Razorbacks built a lead. And only in a few seconds did Christian Kirk tear it all down by returning a kickoff 100 yards. You know, some 2,000 years ago, our Lord began building something great. It's a spiritual building in which He is the chief cornerstone, and we are living stones. It has taken many, many years for the church to be built up, and, and she isn't finished yet. It is our role and our responsibility to continue the building process. Unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is that Christians are better at tearing down the structure than building it up. I cannot tell you how many times I have witnessed the church be destroyed by the efforts of people who, were, who had their thinking convoluted with power or politics or personality. I pray for the souls of those who caused such ruin. You know, Paul dealt with his fair share of this, didn't he? You read through the New Testament letters, you see that Paul dealt with those who were trying to tear down the church. Maybe they weren't meaning to, but yet they were in their efforts. We read of him scolding Alexander and Hymenaeus for their 
for their efforts to, to destroy the church. We see him scolding the Corinthian brethren for their many problems. And then we see in Philippians chapter 4, he calls out two women by the name of Euodia and Syntyche. He says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony with the Lord. Makes you wonder what their beef was, doesn't it? Were they arguing over the use of a bulletin board in the church building? Were they having issue over one of them being praised from the pulpit and the other one not getting that attention, so there was jealousy? I like to read between the lines here and assume that what Paul is saying is, would you two stop acting like children? Can you two just get along? Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be if you were Euodia or Syntyche? Can you imagine one of our elders getting up one Sunday? Because remember, this letter would have been read in front of the entire congregation. So can you imagine James or Eddie getting up here one Sunday and saying, you know, Debbie and Barbara, can y'all just get along? I mean, how embarrassing would that be, right? You'd want to crawl under the pew if they had pews back in that day. Yet Paul felt like that this needed to be handled boldly and directly because unity was that important. I have a friend. I call him a friend. I really don't know him. I've never met him. He has to be my friend on Facebook, and so I accept it. He is a member of the church. I don't know anything else about him other than what he posts on Facebook. But apparently he is going through a very difficult time in his life. He lives far away from here. I can't even remember the state, but he has eight children, and his wife is divorcing him. And he shares all of this on social media, which is probably not a great idea. But you can tell without much other context than, than that, that he is hurting, that he is having a difficult time, that he doesn't want this, but apparently his wife does. And I read his story, and it hurts my heart. And then I read the posts or the comments from people that are Christians who are saying things like, you should be ashamed of yourself, breaking up a family. You're not allowed to get a divorce. All these different things. And I'm thinking, that's the best you can do? In our efforts to maybe help a gentleman, they're only hurting. I read an article not long ago called 10 Reasons Why People Leave Church. i got to be honest with you. I usually just skim over those and move on because most of them are related to something selfish. I mean, they just are. But in this one, it was kind of interesting because reason number nine that people gave for leaving the church was this. They said they needed less drama in their life. Apparently, people are finding out that the church is not much different than real life, that they come in and they're still infighting, they're still backbiting, they're still backstabbing and people being pushed to the margins. Actually, reason number eight is not much different than reason number nine. It was unresolved conflict. You know, any community, any organization is going to have conflict. Any church, in fact, is going to have conflict. It's how you deal with that conflict that matters. That's the key, right? Dealing with it effectively. All too often, churches shoot their own. All too often, churches shoot the wounded. Hurting people don't always feel like that their feelings are validated. That they receive the comfort and the encouragement that they so desperately need. And I understand that many times we, we hear things like this and we say to ourselves, well, you know what, you need to quit whining and just get to work. You just need to pick yourself up and go on. I mean, who hasn't wanted to tell a church member, quit whining and get to work, right? And yet there is a real problem 
as we've talked about over the last few weeks, of people hurting in our churches. And they need to know that people who are their brothers and sisters in Christ do care. That we actually are concerned about them. So just telling them to quit whining doesn't work. And I look throughout the New Testament, and I look at Paul's letters, and there is one theme that I find over and over again with Paul. And it's this. Build one another up. Build one another up. Nowhere do I find the opposite. Nowhere do I find Paul saying, tear one another down. That's okay. You can do that. You know, we talk about direct commands in the Bible, and we talk about if it's a direct command, you've got to obey, right? If it's a direct command, you have to heed it. No if, ands, or buts about it. Okay, so what about these? Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. What about this one? Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Or this one, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Or 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11, therefore encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are also doing. And there are many, many other passages that speak to edification, the building of one another up. And by default, all of them negate the opposite, which is tear one another down. That's not your job. You're not a wrecking ball. You're a builder. You're not a demolition man. You're a construction worker. As a member of the Lord's church, your role and responsibility is to be a builder. It's central to what we do each week. Remember Hebrews chapter 10? Let let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the primary reasons why we come together each week is to build one another up to encourage and to edify. Yes, we are here to worship. And I am in no way downplaying the significance of worship. It is vital to who we are as a people. But within that framework is also the edification of the saints. We come together, we are built up. And it should be a part of the fabric of who we are. So over the next few weeks, here's what I want to do. We're building something great outside. We're building a new building that's going to allow us to spread out and give us space. And we thank Josh and Collier and, and Jack Harkins and Waylon and all those guys who are doing such a great job. And thank you for being here this morning and, and helping us with these tours and all of this effort. It's a wonderful, exciting time, but we're building something even bigger than a building. We're building up faith. We're building our members up. And we're building up the kingdom by making and growing disciples. But I think what happens all too often is we get relegated to a pew and we think that that's good enough. That as long as I come here, that I sit in my pew and I worship, that's good enough. I want to encourage you to think outside the pew. And here's the reason why. Because pews don't move. You can't be confined to a pew because pews don't move. It's unnatural for a pew to move on its own. And it's unnatural... For a Christian not to move. Throughout scripture we see 
that a daily walk with God is described as just that. It's a walk. The Christian life is a walk or a race or a run. Jesus commands us to go and make disciples. Pews don't move. Pews don't grow. They are what they are. They're not going to grow. They're not going to get bigger. Babies grow. Children of God should grow. People grow physically. We should grow spiritually. We should be growing. We should be maturing. We should be developing as a Christian. And you won't do that just by sitting in the pew. Worship is vital, but it's not all that there is. And pews don't care. You can't have a relationship with a pew. Oh, I know some people do. Some people are quite territorial about their pew. It's as if they're married to that pew. But you can't have a relationship with a pew. It's, a, it's, it's people that we have relationship with. It's showing compassion. It's having a passion for the lost. Pews don't laugh. They don't cry. Pews don't show compassion. They don't care. And pews don't last. Everything physical is going to wind up as ashes in the end, right? So a pew doesn't last. Quit being so tied to a pew because it's not going to be here in the end. All it is is a comfortable place for you to sit. But I hope you understand that souls in the kingdom are much more important than bodies in the pew. And therefore, we have to leave the pew. As I've said over and over again, there's a time to gather and there is a time to scatter. Do you remember this little, uh, this little illustration we, we, we've done in the past, uh, I guess when we were kids probably? This is the church, this is the steeple, open it up and see all the people. Remember that? It's really not accurate, is it? Because what it should probably say is, this is the church building. This is the steeple on the church building. Open it up and see the church. Not quite as catchy, though, is it? But the truth of the matter is, unless and until we see church as more than just a building, and unless and until we see church as more than a place that you just go to, we're never going to fully grasp what it means to be the Lord's church. To build something great, we've got to move past our thinking about church and see it as more than a building with four walls or a place that we meet twice a week at an agreed-upon time. There is a time to gather and there is a time to scatter. And when we are gathered together, we are the church. When we scatter, we still represent the church, right? We are still the church. It's not a building. It's who we are. You know, one thing that I think is so important, if we're going to grasp the concept of being the church that the Lord intended, is understanding what it means to be unified. Paul talked about unity over and over again. That was a main theme in his letters. It should be a main theme with us as Christians. We've got to get out of our own way here. We've got to be dedicated to unity, and we've got to stop shooting our own you know, in battle, in war, we have this thing called friendly fire. That sometimes a soldier gets caught in the crossfire. Sometimes he gets shot by a bullet that came from one of his own fellow soldiers. And we call that friendly fire. In the church, we have people that are hurting. And instead of helping them up and picking them up, we shoot them. And that's not friendly fire. That's a war crime, folks. Because that's not the way it should be. Those who are wounded, those who are down and out, need to know that they have fellow brothers and sisters who are there, not to shoot them, but to pick them up and to nurse them back to health. I know there's no such thing as a perfect church. I know that there's always going to be those who are hurting, those who are wounded. But to shoot our own is a travesty like no other. Kind of reminds me of Barney Five. You remember Barney Five? 
Remember what he did? He carried his gun and he carried his bullet where? Front pocket. And any time there was danger, he would get his gun out and shaking. He'd take that bullet out. He'd load it in the chamber. He'd put it down and he'd shoot himself in the foot. Remember that? That's what we do. All too often, we shoot ourselves in the foot. We can't get out of our own way. And Satan is sitting back and just laughing because he doesn't have to do anything. We're doing his work for him when we shoot our own, when we don't respect unity. We're no better than Barney. We've got to remember what's at stake here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, and he warns them by stating this. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. I want you to notice the phrase there, from among your own selves. The biggest threat to the church is not always liberalism or legalism or Islam. The biggest threat to the Lord's church a lot of times is us. And we shoot ourselves in the foot. We hurt our own efforts because we're too busy fighting among ourselves and not paying attention to what's most important. Remember the Corinthian church. That's a great example. They had all sorts of problems, right? There was quarreling and division. There was religious snobbery. There were all sorts of sexual improprieties. There was hypocrisy, misconduct, and pride. And all of those problems boiled down to an eye problem, didn't they? I, I, I. It's all about me. Our world preaches a me-first gospel. And it's hard not to bring that into the church. Our world tells us you only look out for yourself. But Christianity tells us you look out for everybody else first. You put God first, everybody else second, yourself last. That's a difficult thing for us to adhere to. And we see this play out in Scripture even. We see the battle that Paul had in trying to, in trying to promote unity. We even see it. In John's letter to his beloved friend Gaius in 3 John, there was a cancer in that church. Do you remember who it was? That cancer had a name. you remember who it was? It was a man by the name of Diotrephes. And verse 9 of 3 John tells you everything you need to know about this man. John writes, I wrote something to the church, by, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. When you love to be first among them, then everything else comes second, including God, including Jesus. And 3 John shows us how one person can ruin the entire dynamic of a church. We see it in other places as well. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. Euodia and Syntyche evidently were causing major problems for this church. Just two people were causing havoc in this church. You remember the, the letter of Philippians, what Paul is talking about leading up to Philippians chapter 4, he's talking about the goal of life and being like Christ. Some really good and positive things. Then he comes to chapter 4 and he pauses, he takes a step back to say, Euodian Syntyche, can't you just get along? Apparently they were causing major problems. Here's the deal. The church is charged with a very difficult task, a monumental task really. It's the task of getting along. And that can be tough, can it? It can be quite distasteful. 
It's kind of like the vacuum cleaner salesman that decided he was going to expand his territory and try to make a whole lot more money. And so he goes way out into the deep, deep woods of Arkansas, and he finds this elderly lady. He knocks on the door. She answers, and he steps inside and immediately goes into his pitch, talking about how great his vacuum cleaner is, how technologically advanced his vacuum cleaner is. This is the best product on the market. And he looks over, and in his enthusiasm, he sees an ashtray. And he takes the ashtray and he dumps the contents on her carpet and he says, I can guarantee you that my vacuum cleaner will pick up every last ash there on your carpet and if it doesn't, I'll lick them up. And she said, well, you better get busy because we don't have any electricity. <laughs> you know, there are some things in life that are just distasteful, right? And sometimes church can be very distasteful because people are involved. And where you have people, you have problems. But as the Lord's church, we've got to be willing to do the things that maybe we find distasteful. And one of the most monumental things that we may ever have to do is just learn to get along. And for the sake of unity, to set ourselves aside. I want you to notice what Paul writes in Philippians 2, prior to what he said to Yodia and Syntyche. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Here's the thing. Unity in an imperfect church is not complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. You see, unity in an imperfect church usually boils down to one-on-one -on -one relationships. It usually just boils down to something as simple as, you two just need to get along. But you know as well as I do, that can be difficult. It's not complicated, but it's difficult sometimes. Our culture, as I said, preaches that me-first gospel. It's hard to set, set ourselves aside and go all in when it comes to unity because that means that we have to set ourselves to the side. We have to be someone who is willing to not look out for our own interests, and that's difficult for us. But did you notice all the ifs in Philippians chapter 2? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion... The fact that we are all Christians should inherently mean that we are unified. The power of Christian love should keep us unified. The fact that we share in the Holy Spirit should keep us unified. And the existence of human compassion should keep us unified. The stakes are much bigger than you or your feelings. Can you set yourself aside if it means that the church will be better? Can you set aside your feelings? Can you... Can you go without getting your way if it means the church will be better? Here's a question for you. Are you more concerned about you or unity? Don't be an I problem in the church. Those outside the church, I think, are desperately searching for a place where they can come in and have a drama-free existence where they can just worship God and be with fellow Christians who will love on them and encourage them and edify them. Are we good at this? Absolutely. And In my very biased opinion, we're the best at it. 
but we can always love more. We can always, we can always raise the bar, can't we? I'm so grateful to be a part of a congregation that stresses unity, that seeks to get along, that strives to do the difficult, even though it's not complicated, they strive to do the difficult. I'm, I'm grateful for that. But let us never forget or take for granted what we have. I'd much rather be proactive than reactive, wouldn't you? I know I've used this illustration before, probably in the past, but look at those two words. You've got two words there that are almost identical, right? They have the same letters. They have exactly the same number of letters, but they also even have the exact same letters. What's the difference? Well, the difference was where you put the I. Where you place the I means everything. It's the difference in being a uniter or an untire. And so I want to leave you with that this morning. Which one are you? Where you place the I makes all the difference. Are you going to be a part of a united effort or in an untying effort? We're a team here. More than a team, we're a family. And family should be about one another building one another up. You are not a wrecking ball. You're a builder. You are not a demolition man. You are a construction worker. If we can help you this morning, if you have a need, if you're ready to study the Bible with someone, if you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, let us help you. This is a wonderful congregation. And we would love for you to be a part of it. If you're thinking about placing membership, then do that this morning as well. Whatever your need you might have, come now as we stand and as we sing.